ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Humans exist in in spaces. There's there's no getting around that. Built spaces, natural spaces. Our our existence is a story of place. We are somewhere, always. What do you make of that? Or do you make nothing of it? Is place a, a constant in your awareness? You, you might consign place, the, the detail of your surrounds, to a barely conscious background. But even so, I wonder, can, can you really escape its presence, its influence on, on thought and feeling? I want to talk to Colin Ellard about this. Uh, Colin is a cognitive neuroscientist at the University of Waterloo in Canada. He's also director of the university's Urban Realities Laboratory. Uh, his thing is psychogeography. Just what that is? Well, we, we'll get to that. Colin, welcome. Thank you. That word, psychogeography, it will land strangely on some ears. Can you give me a working definition? Sure, I can. I, in its original use, it was uh, used by a group of French philosophers who argued that there was this kind of nefarious agenda that involved how the design of spaces could influence how we felt, where we went, what we did. And in their view, it was usually for, for bad ends, to make people conform, to make them spend money, and so on and so forth. That's a very I modern mean, idea. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is. It is. Those, the original French psychogeographers, I, I will have to say, I think were you know a little bit odd and perhaps slightly crazy. I like to think that I'm not. Nevertheless, the, the, the meaning of that word psychogeography, I think, is, is still somewhat similar. The idea basically is to want to try to understand how the design of all of the different spaces that we inhabit affect our psychology, like how we feel, how we think, what we do, and who we are. It has to be the case that they do, surely. I mean, that, that's an inescapable reality of human existence. Yeah, I think I think it is. It's often something that we're kind of oblivious to in the in the day to day. Certainly, it's the case that that the people who design the spaces that we inhabit are often very mindful of the way that space can be manipulated to change the way that we feel, for good or for maybe not maybe not so good purposes. But it's it's always there. Every space that you inhabit has an atmosphere of some kind, and we may not know exactly how to define that word, that idea of architectural atmosphere, but nevertheless, it's there. It's a constant presence. So every time you walk into a room, enter a new building, explore a new city, streetscape, something is happening to you. What that is, is predicated in part by your surroundings and also the way that your surroundings interact with who you are. You know, the history, the culture, the experiences, the memories that you bring to a place are important as well. And developing that, that sense of, of spatial awareness, I guess, is what it is in a way. I mean, you've written very interestingly on, on, on the tools that we might begin to think about to, to start that, that sort of process of inquiry, start that, that attuning ourselves to those possibilities. Yeah, I think it's, it's one of those things that the way to describe it would be to say that it's, it's simple, but nevertheless slightly difficult to do it. I think the way to approach it is to just think about how to open yourself to the experience of places. 
I draw explicit parallels with things like mindfulness meditation, where the idea is to basically become quiet and tune into what your senses are telling you. And that's a start. And then if, I think if you do that even for a few minutes at a time, in the interesting places that you inhabit from day to day, you'll discover that it is possible to become more in touch with those kinds of connections between spaces and the way that you feel and think. I think we're all kind of used to that sense in, in, in moments when we encounter architectural extremity. Uh, when we, for example, and I think you have a, in, in your own life and experience a, a great example of this, uh, when we walk into a grand church space, uh, a space which is architecturally calculated to create within us a sense of awe and wonder, and we sit there and we just drink that in. I mean, that, that's sort of the high end of what you're talking about, is it not? Yeah, it is. Maybe not everybody has had that experience, but I think that it's it's worth seeking out if you haven't. Uh, those kind of grand experiences of places. In my case, I think the earliest one that I remember was the St. Peter's Cathedral in Vatican City. And I remember walking into that, into that space and just being literally having my knees knocked out from underneath me. <laughs> and I looked around and I saw, I saw that other people were having the same experience. I and mean, there were people who were dropping to the ground in exaltation. I should say that I'm not a particularly religious person, so I, I don't think that it was those kinds of connotations of the space that were getting to me. It was just the immensity of the space and also the immensity of detail and effort that had gone into producing that, that space. In a really short period of time, it had this dramatic impact on me. And studies have shown that those kinds of experiences, those awe experiences, change who we are, how we feel, and even things like how we relate to other people. There's even evidence that having those kinds of experiences has an effect on our immune system. So those kinds of exposures to the grand awe-inspiring vistas can actually change our, our physiology, our biochemistry. It's that profound. The church experience is, is a remarkable one because it's, it, it goes to the very core of sort of existential dilemma. It, it, it's our smallness in the face of eternity and death. That's what the building represents. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. So, so people who study awe talk about the combined effect of the experience of immensity, but also just as importantly, epiphany. Normally in these kinds of conversations in the psychological realm, by epiphany, what we're talking about is exactly what you're describing, that we become more attuned to the relationship between ourselves and the rest of the universe and aware of what psychologists sometimes call the small self, the idea that we are minuscule compared to everything that's out there. That's worldview changing. I mean, the interesting thing, too, is that uh, you, you would argue that, that similar effects are brought by all the spaces in which we move. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think what's special about, about religious spaces and even religious spaces that aren't necessarily immense, that they don't have that kind of grandeur, um, I think what's special about them is that they are explicitly designed to elicit those kinds of emotions. There are other kinds of spaces, though, that we, that we might inhabit that can also elicit those same kinds of feelings of, of awe. A big courthouse or a big city hall or even a bank headquarters might have some of the same kinds of effects. And one could argue that in certain cases, 
that's part of the design agenda of those kinds of buildings. Again, you can see the connection between trying to convey that intention and uh, psychological attributes like the experience of the small self, feeling that one's own place in the universe is minuscule compared to the grandeur of what's out there. Do more intimate spaces work in reverse? Uh, the room perhaps that I'm sitting in at the moment, which has, has a, a pleasant view, it has his books on shelves, it has sources of comfort around it for me. Is that the reverse of this? Is that a, a, a establishing the sort of the primacy of the self within an intimate space? Yeah, I think it probably is. I think that you see some of the best examples of that kind of design intention in residential spaces. For example, we did some studies years ago where we built virtual reality versions of some nice residential spaces, some of which were designed by name architects like Frank Lloyd Wright, who was a master of designing residential spaces that produced those kinds of feelings of refuge and comfort. What we found was that, you know, the, the whole layout of the experiment was that we, we had people inhabit these spaces virtually. And then we asked them questions like, if you were in the position of having to make a very difficult decision, where would you go in this space? And we saw gravitate to these kind of low ceilinged, close to the hearth locations of, of refuge. There's a need for those kinds of spaces as well, which for most of us are first and foremost in, hopefully, in our homes. The interesting development in, in, in your study, and you, and you write on this as well, with, with, fascinatingly, is, is the introduction of things like artificial intelligence and uh, artificial realities that, that allow you to actually track with, with accuracy, with, 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 with scientific rigor, people's responses to different environments. Yeah, we've done a fair bit of that both in real-world places and in, in virtual reality, and they, they both have their benefits. I mean, the, the nice thing about field research, research in the real world, is that you have a reasonable expectation that the kinds of things that you're measuring are the kinds of things that are actually happening to people in real spaces and, and in real times. The, the downside is that you, you lack a lot of experimental rigor. There are all kinds of things that you just can't control when you're doing studies on people as they walk around the streets of a city, for example. You know, it starts to rain. Somebody yells at your participant for some reason. Something odd happens. You can bypass those kinds of confounds in virtual reality because you basically have control over, hopefully, everything that's important about people's exploration of a, of a scene. But you lose some aspect of, of reality. So we try to we jump back and forth between one and the other. A lot of the time, what we're trying to understand is the scope and limits of using tools like virtual reality to understand people's responses to real space. But yes, in both of those settings, certain kinds of, of technologies and methodologies have really come along. So it's possible, for example, to measure people's levels of physiological arousal in real places. And it's becoming more and more feasible to go further than that and to be able to measure things like people's brainwaves while they inhabit different kinds of, of spaces. So all of that is, is really enriching our understanding of how people respond to places at a fairly granular level. Can I take you out of the granular into the, into the sweeping generalisation? And I, I wonder from the work you have done, what, you, what your summary is of the modern places in which we live, the, the, and for most people that is the modern city, is, is, is that a thing which is working effectively with our psychology? 
in lots of ways, we have not done all that well in terms of how we've designed our cities, what I've always called psychological sustainability. That is how, how well the design of a city meets the needs of a human being. Because at the outset, if we think about the kinds of conditions for which our brains and bodies have evolved, um, they're very much unlike the kinds of conditions that we find in cities where we're living in, in large cities in massive numbers, living almost entirely among strangers. Because of that, being subjected to a number of different kinds of, of stressors. That's one of the reasons why it's, it's very difficult to design a city that works well for, for human psychology. I think you find that sometimes in areas of cities, but overall in their entirety in a city, it's hard to think of a good example of a city that's got everything right. I think there probably isn't one. I think, you know, in their in their origins, certainly the, the, the modern Western city has been designed first and foremost for speed, for people being able to connect with one another quickly and to get from one place to another. And what that's meant is the use of automobiles. And as soon as automobiles are an intrinsic element of a city, it seems to me that it changes everything. Of course, the, the, the foundational human space is nature. Yeah. Um, and I wonder, in, in the built environment, how much of, of the, the built spaces that work well for human psychology take some learning or make some reference to the natural world that bring forward elements of, of nature into a built setting? Is that the thing that works? Yeah, I, th I think it does. I think there's at this point pretty good accumulating evidence for the importance of giving people um, the opportunities to have nature experiences in cities. The more sort of obvious everyday example of that would be the use of, of good urban landscape architecture. Fairly recently, there's been this kind of idea that that landscaping in cities is an aesthetic bauble. It's kind of an add-on that's you know as pleasant if we can. But I think increasingly we're understanding that having those kinds of opportunities to experience uh, nature in cities is fundamental to mental health. So that's one way of tackling this idea of how to make a city psychologically sustainable. A good rule of thumb, for example, might be that everybody should have access to at least a view of nature within about five minutes of wherever they live. Beyond the kind of the obvious idea of having things like urban gardens and uh, boulevard trees and so on and so forth, I think there are other lessons to be taken from, uh, from nature that have to do with things like understanding the importance of complexity and variability in streetscapes. Some of the work that we've done, for example, has, sh has shown that when you expose people to, let's just call them boring streetscapes, so streetscapes that don't have much variety, that produces uh, a not terribly healthy psychological state in people. And I think one of the reasons that, that it does that is because it's so far from the kinds of scenes that we would expect to see in nature. Not overwhelming, but refreshing level of complexity and interest that we find in, in natural scenes. But with more subtlety than saying, let's 
plants a bunch of trees on the street. I think. Yes. <laughs> I mean, to take it even to the, to the beginning of our conversation, that, that big point in, in architectural thought of the awe-inspiring space, that in itself is a response drawn from nature. That is the response of standing on the mountaintop gazing across the lake. It, it, it is it, it, somehow recreating that sense of natural wonder uh, within a built space. Yeah, I think I think that's true. I you know we often talk about the duality of what what are called prospect and refuge, which is kind of an older idea that came from a actually he was a geographer named Jay Appleton who talked about the fact that if you look at where people prefer to be in all kinds of settings, they like to be in locations where they have refuge, but they also like to have what he called prospect, which is that we like to have those long vistas. We like to be able to see what's in the landscape. We like to be able to see what's coming. And those things, Apple's and I think they're really deeply built into us. They're part of our biological heritage. You could transfer some of those kinds of ideas into the reasons why awe-inspiring settings like cathedrals or even bank headquarters, as I said, mm. might produce the same kinds of emotions. Colin, thank you. It's a fascinating area of, of, of study and discussion. And, and Lister, if you're intrigued and, and want to begin your your journey to an inquiry in, into space, can I recommend, and we'll put a link to this article on the, the Blueprint page at the Radio National website, a piece that Colin wrote for the journal Psych titled How to Appreciate Buildings. Uh, and it gives you a step-by-step -step guide to process a, a, a valuable resource Colin, thank you so very much. It's been, it's been great to talk. Oh, you're welcome. It's great, great to talk to you. Colin Ellard, he's a cognitive neuroscientist, University of Waterloo, Canada, director of that university's Urban Realities Laboratory. His most recent book is Places of the Heart, uh, back in 2015. And again, that, that article, How to Appreciate Buildings, uh, a link to that on the, the Blueprint Radio National page. This is Blueprint for Living. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.